Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 48 for the third quarter of August 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Image Processing and Anomalies, Part 2. Like Part 1, this will be a bit long. Unlike Part 1, there will be no specific examples of pseudoscience at the end, but there will be scattered examples throughout. Now, I do know that Part 1 just came out, but I think that it's important for this episode to give a bit of a recap. The episode was focused on explaining the basic processes that must be gone through in order to produce the final images that we all know and love from telescopes and spacecraft. I covered things like detector sensitivity, color processing, a teensy bit of how spacecraft get images back to Earth, releasing images to the public, and talked about a few of the crazy claims along the way. The purpose of all of that with regards to pseudo-astronomy really gets back to the fundamental point that an image that scientists produce is luminosity-wise and geometry-wise the best that we can approximate of what the future would actually look like. Also, that color is often false, and along every step of the way, anomalies are both removed and other ones can crop up. This episode is going to focus on some of the finer points of image processing, misunderstandings that people have about them, and how these misunderstandings have resulted in claims of artificial features on, well, usually, the Moon and Mars. I should also mention that there is a companion video in the works for this, but as I expected, it's taking a bit longer to make than I'd hoped, and my day job is sapping my time. Hopefully, it will be released relatively soon. The script is written, the voice recorded, it's just a matter of compositing everything together to make some sort of meaningful sense. And while it is a companion video, it is meant to be independent of both of these episodes and demonstrate some of the more visual things. So even if I end up not releasing it for a year, you don't have to come back and listen to episode 47 and this one in order to make any sense of it. Now, finally, before we get started, I want to remind you that this episode will make a lot more sense if you think of images as a bunch of numbers. In fact, I'm almost going to force you to think of them as a bunch of numbers. Every pixel of every image has a numerical value to it, and that value tells you how bright it should be. You can think of it as how many photons it recorded, or how we stretched it for display, but think of it as numbers. For color, if you're working in red, green, and blue, or RGB, then every pixel, instead of having one number, has three, each one telling you how much red is at that pixel, green is at that pixel, and blue is at that pixel. It's all numbers, and if you can think of it that way, this episode will be a lot easier to understand. And now, even though I've mentioned color, I'm going to be talking about black and white. So the natural first thing to talk about is dynamic range, which is the range of what those numbers are in an image. In this sense, the dynamic range can be thought of as two different things. First, how much light is recorded, and second, how much light is displayed. In terms of recording, if you had an ideal medium, then you could record anything from zero to nearly infinity. So your image would span, literally, a nearly infinite range where very dim things could be displayed next to very bright things, and all would have non-zero and non-infinite values. In reality, we can't really do that. These days, digital detectors are limited by what we call a well depth, which, if you go back to episode 35, 
can be thought of as how deep your bucket for light is. Since everyone's computer system is based on binary, well depths are in powers of two. The most common is what we call 8-bit, which can express values between 0 and 2 to the 8th power minus 1. The reason for the minus 1 is so that you can include 0. This means that your dynamic range of any 8-bit black and white image is between 0 and 255 shades of gray. On a computer screen, any 8-bit image that has a pixel with a value of 0 will be black, and a value of 255 will be white. The next stage up is usually 16-bit, which can express values between 0 and 65,535. Obviously, 65,535 is much larger than 255, and so a 16-bit detector and a 16-bit image has a much larger dynamic range. Most astronomy CCDs are 16-bit. Most professional cameras used by normal photographers are actually 14-bit, but the software fakes it and scales up to 16-bit for output. Another name for this is bit depth, so we could just say that we're working in 8-bit, 16-bit, or 14-bit depth images. 32-bit images can display up to 2 to the 32nd, minus 1, shades of gray, or between 0 and 4,294,967,295. Many modern graphics programs, such as Photoshop, can handle 32-bit images, but they really don't like them and you generally need to downsample to 16-bit or even 8-bit to really deal with them. In fact, in Photoshop, a lot of filters won't work on 16-bit images. You have to use 8-bit. The newfangled photography craze of HDR, or High Dynamic Range, processing, deals with 32 bits because, well, it's high dynamic range. But again, in order to really, really do stuff with them, you have to use very dedicated software or downsample in Photoshop or something else. Of course, in this discussion, we are talking about modern equipment, digital devices. Film and photographic plates generally have a higher dynamic range than even 16-bit will offer. When they're scanned today, that range is generally compressed into 16-bit, or it's actually usually down to 8-bit for web display and download. So the next question could be, what happens when you convert an image from one to the other? When you upscale, say you go from an 8-bit image to a 16-bit one, you are asking the computer to create information that is not there. Depending on the exact algorithm, it will do one of two-ish things. The first option is that it will simply take every pixel and multiply its value by 256. So a pixel that was zero before will stay zero. But if it had a value of 1 before, it will now be 256. A value that was 2 before will now be 512, and so on and so forth. The other method is that it will guess. It'll first do what I just said, multiply everything by 256, but then it will examine the surrounding pixels and adjust them up or down a bit in brightness, the exact amount depending upon the exact algorithm that the computer is using. In other words, it is changing the information that was there because you're asking it to. For real science, this should never, ever, ever be done. Going in the other direction, such as from 16-bit to 8-bit, you're telling the computer to delete information. Remember, pixels can only have an integer value or a whole number. It can't be 1.3 brightness or 16.7 brightness. 
So when you go from 16-bit to 8-bit, it divides every pixel by 256, and then it rounds, usually rounding down. So any pixel before that ranged from 0 to 255 will be converted to 0. Any pixel that was 256 brightness to 511 will be converted to 1, and so on and so forth. This means that you are losing information and can no longer tell as much about the variation from one part of an image to the other in terms of brightness. This is why professional photographers often work in 16-bit, and this is why astronomers work in the highest dynamic range of the original data. This is also why scans of old photographic plates and film that are displayed as 8-bit images on the internet, such as the region where this alleged lunar ziggurat that I've been dealing with lately is, cannot display the original dynamic range of the film. Claiming that the shadows all having a value of zero means that someone at NASA took a black paintbrush in Photoshop and removed these regions where there was evidence of ancient aliens demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of dynamic range. One final thing to say about dynamic range is that an image need not take full advantage of the dynamic range that it is afforded. What I mean by this is, say I have an 8-bit image, so it could display values between 0 and 255 brightness. But, it may only have pixels with values between 20 and 180. Its dynamic range does not actually take advantage of all of the 8-bit space that it's in. But, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, that's usually a good thing because it means that the darkest regions of the image have some data in them that's non-zero, and it means that the brightest areas were not saturated on the high end, 255, so there's data in them as well. But that also doesn't mean that the image looked that way originally. Someone could have compressed it down to effectively 7-bit space, but saved it as 8. Nor does it mean that it has to stay looking that way. I'll discuss how you can change this in a bit when I talk about levels, curves, and contrast. But now, to continue with the pixel-level detail, we need to talk about noise. All photographs have an inherent level of noise because of the very basic laws of thermodynamics and statistics. In other words, the very fact that atoms and molecules are moving around means that you don't know exactly what data recorded was real. The colder you can get your detector, the less noise there will be which is why astronomers will sometimes cool their CCDs with liquid nitrogen or even liquid helium. That said, I haven't really explained what noise is, and I'm going to do so again from the digital perspective. There are two sources of noise. The first is what I just mentioned, where atoms and electrons moving around will sometimes be recorded as a photon, when there really wasn't a photon present. The cooler the detector, the less they'll move around, and so the less they'll be detected. This is purely random, and so it will appear in some pixels more than others, and so you don't really know what's going on. The other kind of noise is purely statistical. The recording of photons by digital detectors is a counting process, a statistical process, and it's governed by what we call counting or Poisson statistics. That means that there is an inherent underlying uncertainty where you don't know how many photons hit that pixel, even though you have a real number that was recorded. And in this case, I'm not even talking about the sensitivity and quantum efficiency that I discussed last time. The uncertainty is the square root of the number of photons that were recorded. 
To make the numbers easy, let's say you only had 9 photons that were recorded. The square root of 9 is 3. So that means that even though you recorded 9 photons there, your uncertainty of how bright that pixel should be, like a faint star, is plus or minus 3, or 33% of 9. Now let's say you recorded 100 photons. Your uncertainty is plus or minus 10, which is a larger number than 3, but 10 is only 10% of 100, and so your uncertainty is smaller in a relative sense. Now let's say you recorded 10,000 photons. Your uncertainty is plus or minus 100, which is only 1% of 10,000. This is why we always want to record more photons, or more light, because the relative uncertainty of how bright that pixel is should go down the more light we record. Now, what's the effect of noise when you don't have a lot of light recorded? Well, the vast majority of you out there listening to this probably already know because you've taken those low-light photos that turn out like crap. They're fuzzy, the color probably looks like it has tiny dots of red or green or blue all over it, so it's grainy, and there's very little dynamic range. That's a noisy image because of the inherent uncertainty in the light hitting every pixel in your camera, but so that it's not completely dark, your camera multiplied all of that light, including the noise, in order to make something visible that you could actually see and not be all dark. With the idea of noise in mind, after an image is taken, there's only one way to scientifically, as opposed to guesstimating, reduce the noise without any guesswork based on a computer algorithm, like uh, median averaging, that kind of stuff. The way to do this is to shrink it. When you bin the pixels, such as combining sets of 2x2 two two or 4 pixels into 1, you are effectively adding together the light that was there, averaging it, and so reducing the amount of noise by a factor of 2. So for example, let's say you have 4 pixels that recorded 110, 92, 84, and 103 photons each. Now I assume all of you have calculators in your head, so you can tell that the relative noise levels were 9.5%, 10.4%, 10.9%, 10.9%, After you've combined them to an average of 97, the relative noise is only 5.1%. If you were to bin 3 by 3 you would reduce the noise by a factor of 3 as opposed to by a factor of 2. Noise is random across the whole thing, and it makes images in general look a little bit grainy. A perfectly smooth white surface could look like a technicolor dust storm if you photograph it under low light. But people who make a supposed living out of searching for anomalies in lunar and Martian photography will take what might have been a perfectly smooth, in reality evenly toned surface, look at the difference between one pixel and the next that's purely due to noise, and then say that it's anomaly once they do other things to it. One class of those things that you can do to an image, such as I just mentioned, is to resize and rotate. Now I did mention this briefly in the last episode with some of Andy Basiago's work. The basic question here is what happens when you change the size or rotation of an image. First let's deal with rotation. When you rotate an image, you are always changing the raw information that was there unless you're rotating by multiples of 90 degrees. That's because we deal with rectangular pixels. If we had, say, hexagonal pixels, then you could rotate in multiples of 60 degrees and be perfectly fine. So if you flip your photo from landscape to portrait mode, you're good. 
if you rotate that vacation photo of the Kremlin by 2.4 degrees clockwise, then you are telling the computer to make up the information at pretty much every single pixel. Now, it does a really, really, really good job of that. But because pixels are square, and because you are rotating by a non-angle of a square amount, the computer has to use mathematical formulas to figure out what the value of each pixel would have been if you took that photo it had actually been rotated by 2.4 degrees clockwise. An implication of this is that if you rotate an image by some amount, and then rotate it again by another amount, it is not the same as if you rotated by the sum of those two amounts originally. It'll be really, really, really close, but it's not exactly the same. This means that if an image has been rotated many, many times, like say you rotate an image by one degree 90 times, it is not going to look the same as if you rotated it by 90 degrees originally. And anomalies will crop up when you do this. Now granted, I've not explicitly seen an example of a photograph where an anomaly has been introduced due to rotation and people claiming that it's uh, some lunar ziggurat or whatever, but what I have seen is when people point to anomalies caused by resizing. Mike Barra, Richard Hoagland's one-time co-author, recently wrote when talking about a particular image that I'm now intimately familiar with, quote, The up-sampling process would have the effect of actually making the NASA image better, end quote. In fact, I'd say that a good 50% or more of the images that I've seen where people are claiming to have found ancient architecture on the moon or Mars are due to scaling the image up due to an extreme misunderstanding of what this actually means, as Mike Barra demonstrated. Scaling an image up in size is very much like trying to increase the bit depth of an image like I talked about with dynamic range. Remember, when you scale from an 8-bit to 16-bit space, you multiply every pixel value by 256, and then you may or may not do some extra math to make it maybe smoother and more what the computer thinks is realistic. The exact same thing goes on when you increase an image in size. You are telling the computer, again, to guess on data that is not actually there. People who anomaly hunt and do this seem to think that if I were to take a photograph from space of a parking lot, and that parking lot covers only one pixel, then I can take that one pixel into the computer, scale it up in size, and it will show individual cars. Google Earth might be part of the blame for this, but really, you, you might at this point be accusing me of a reductio ad absurdum fallacy, but I'm not exaggerating here. These people really think that you can recreate data that is not there. The misunderstanding is that that data is somehow hidden within the average light that hit that pixel and was recorded. They think that if you increase the size in the computer, then the computer can use the surrounding pixels and somehow extract detail that was lost from the inherent pixelation of that image. This is not true. A pixel is a pixel, and 100% is 100%. When I tell the computer to increase the image size, it will, just like increasing bit depth and it will use one or two different types of algorithms. Let's start by just saying that you want to increase to 200%. The first method is that it will simply tile each pixel into a 2x2 two two block of 4. So, if you increase instead to 1000%, 
then you'll have a blocky, larger image, where each original pixel is now 10 by 10. But the default of almost every image processing software out there is the second method, where the software will use any number of different kinds of algorithms to guess at what the missing pixels are. So let's say that you have a pixel at location 00, where it has a value of 10. You have another pixel at location 01, and there's a value of 20. You have another pixel at location 10, and that's a value of 15. And another pixel at position 11, and that has a value of 25. If we scale this up to 200% of the original, the code will start by keeping the 00 pixel the same. The pixel value of 20 that was at 01 will now be moved to 02. The pixel that was at position 10 will be now at 20, and the one that was at 11 will be at 22. But now we're missing information at 5 pixels in between all of those. The computer will then guess. It will use the original pixels, and it will guess at what the missing information was. Well, when I say guess here, I mean that it will use a predetermined algorithm to figure it out. And, just like rotation, this is not communicative. If you increase by 123%, and then increase again by 123%, you will get slightly different results than if you had originally increased in size by 151.29%. If you increase by multiples not of 100%, then you are telling it to guess not only just with the intermediate pixels, but you're asking it to guess on most of the pixels. That's because it can't use the original ones in the new image. Say you increase the image in size by 150%. The pixel that was at 00 stays the same. The one that was at 01 moves to 01.5 and the one that was at 0.2 moves to 0.3. So now, the only original pixels that the computer can be absolutely certain about are no longer 3 out of 4, but 2 out of 4. True, the pixel that moved to position 0.1.5 will actually be used by whatever algorithm the computer is using to figure out the missing pixels, but it will no longer be in the new image. The intermediate pixels at position 01 and 02 will be guesses based upon the surrounding ones. The algorithms that the computer uses to guess vary, but they almost always try to make things smooth and look pretty to the human eye. So let's now say that you have an image of Mars surface that's smooth and even, but there's some variation in brightness at the individual pixel level due to the inherent noise. Now, you increase the size by a factor of 5. That means that only 1 out of every 25 pixels in the new image is real, and all of the others are estimates by the computer, and the computer wants to make things look smooth. The result will be blobs and circles and other features that, if you look at enough of them, you're going to find something that looks artificial. In fact, I just did this experiment myself in Photoshop. I created a 100 by 100 pixel image, painted it black, and then used the Add Noise filter to add in random noise. I then increased the size to 5,000 by 5,000 pixels, and I saw streets and faces and a very, very large Rorschach test. I'll have this example in the companion video. If you go ahead and add some JPEG compression artifacts on top of that, you will have a veritable goldmine of pareidolia. 
To reiterate the point of this particular section of the main segment, whenever you scale an image up in size, you are not gaining new data. You are telling the computer to make stuff up. In fact, you can actually lose data. And in a real photograph, especially one where you have variations at the original pixel level, you are almost always guaranteed to get anomalies that look artificial, because technically, they are artificial. You created them in the computer. One of the last things that I want to talk about are levels, curves, and contrast. The best one to start with is levels. At least that's what it's called in Photoshop and several other image processing programs that I've used before. The best way to think about levels is to return to the example from earlier where I talked about dynamic range, and that if you have an 8-bit image with shades that could span between 0 and 255, it may not. It may only go from, say, 64 to 191. That means that when it's displayed on the computer, it will look gray overall, with no solid blacks nor whites. What you could do with the levels is to change that. The basic idea is that it will stretch things out. So, you could tell the computer that you want a brightness of 64 to actually be 0, and you want anything that's 191 to be 255, and it will stretch things out. In this particular case, it stretches the range by a factor of 2. So, any pixel before that had a value of 64 will now be 0, 65 will be 2, 66 will be 4, and so on. Anything that was 191 will be 255, 190 will be 253, 189 will be 251, etc, etc, etc. So, your image will span the whole range at this point, but you have gaps in the brightness. You have nothing with a brightness of 1, 3, 5, and so on. As with changing bit depth with dynamic range, depending upon the algorithm, the computer may choose to change some of the pixels based on the ones around it changing the information that was there originally. So when someone says that the image is completely original and all they did was adjust the levels, it's not actually original anymore. But you can do more with levels. You can clip things off. Usually there are just a very few pixels that have a value of zero. And there are just a very few that have the highest value, either 255 or 65,535. Many programs, when you hit the Auto Levels button, will look at the brightest 0.1% of the pixels and assign them all to white. It will also look at the darkest 0.1% of pixels, and it will assign them all to black. It will then scale everything in between them. In other words, it will remove information, because the darkest 0.1% may have all had a value of between 0 and 5, but now they're all 0 and the brightest may have had values as small as, say, 220. But those are all now 255. In other words, it's removing some of that subtle variation in the darkest and the brightest points. And so, yet again, conspiracists do not understand this. To quote from Mike Barra, quote, What the histograms show us is that while the image produced by NASA has a wide dynamic range, the areas of shadow, where the details that make the ziggurat stand out as artificial might be found, have virtually no dynamic range. They're absolute black. And that can only mean one thing. They were painted over by someone at NASA with a black paintbrush tool. End quote. No, 
It actually means that either the original was not exposed long enough to capture any sort of variation within a very black shadow, much like the Apollo astronauts didn't photograph stars with their visible light cameras, or it means that the levels were simply clipped in a very basic image processing. In fact, something that most scanning software doesn't tell you is that it does this by default, unless you explicitly tell it not to. I can very, very easily picture some summer intern tasked with scanning bunches of old photos and just setting everything on auto. Moving on to contrast adjustment, we start to get away from basic linear stretching. Increasing contrast increases the amount of dark pixels and bright pixels. It does this by stretching things away from pixels with a brightness at a neutral gray, 127 if we're using 8 bits. The amount of contrast enhancement determines the exact amount of pushing more pixels darker and more pixels brighter, but the point, at this point, is that you are again losing the original information that was there, or you're changing it. So say that you have a photo of a planetary surface with a bit of noise to it. You've already blown it up in size, rotated it a few times, and you now increase the contrast. The question now that you should ask is, how much of your current image is original information? And how much of it is computer estimations based on what was there originally? Which brings us to curves, which is really the hardest of the three, I think, to understand. Curves can be thought of as levels, but with more control. Say that you have an image, like one I was recently working on, that shows a small part of the moon as generally an even gray surface, but there's a small part of it with a very fresh crater and very, very bright ejecta emanating from it. To properly fit the entire dynamic range in the image, most of the pixels have to be dark, because most of the surface is dark relative to the bright ejecta. Just a few of those pixels are bright. If you look at a histogram of this, you'll see a very large and broad spike of dark-valued pixels, and then you'll see a small spike of bright pixels, and almost nothing will be in between. Curves can be used to change this. With curves, you can do things like stretch the dark values, mapping them onto a broader range, while you can compress the bright values to just a few shades of gray in the upper end of the dynamic range. As before, the computer is perfectly happy to change the information that's there to let you do this, filling in gaps and shading at the dark end when you stretch it, and decreasing the dynamic range at the high end to get all of the bright ones in a narrow range of shades. Now, I was also going to talk about filters and sharpening, but I think we'll leave that for a Face on Mars episode. This one was dense, and we're already past the half-hour mark. By now... I think you figured out the basic theme for this episode. There are a lot of seemingly innocuous ways to fiddle with an image, but almost all of them are going to result in the computer creating information that wasn't actually there. It's based on the data that was there, but it's not 100% real. If you have a photo on which you've performed a lot of these operations, especially if it's low bit depth like 8-bit, a lot of artificial-looking features can and likely will show up. But, literally, they are artificial. It's not because it's an ancient city on Neptune's moon Triton, but it's because you've told the computer to add it when you've asked it to manipulate the image. For a scientist, we do this as little as possible, 
And we usually have to document every single step of it because journals require that. The journal Science specifically states, quote, Science does not allow certain electronic enhancements or manipulations of micrographs, gels, or other digital images. Linear adjustment of contrast, brightness, or color must be applied to an entire image or plate equally. Nonlinear adjustments, like curves, must be specified in the figure legend. End quote. I added that like curves part. But for a photographer, all of this stuff is fair game. The goal of a photographer is to capture an event and make it look attractive. I always adjust the colors, the curves, the saturation, and other things in photos that I take, and I always do it in 16-bit space before converting to 8-bit for display. For photography for art, it's fine. For science, it can be fraud, and this seems to be lost on the pseudoscientists. There's no new news for this episode, so this episode's question comes again from Belgarath, who asked on my blog, I've been wondering, there are several of the pictures coming back from the new Mars rover Curiosity which are, quote, white-balanced. What exactly is that, and why do they do that? I wasn't initially going to use this for a Q&A, but it's timely, and in the past few days I've come across a lot of people mentioning this on news sites, conspiracy sites, and seeing it both on the rover images as well as high-rise images. So, since I'm assuming that at least the majority of you have been seeing these images, whether you want to or not, it's a timely issue. And it fits right in with image processing, so here we go. And I will be providing some links to some of these in the show notes. Now, this gets back to the discussion in the last episode, where I talked about color processing, and how, when you have more than one filter in front of the detector, you can assign any color you want to that color that was recorded in the final image. If you record, say, red, yellow, and ultraviolet light, when you make a color composite in the computer, you could choose to make those blue, green, and red if you want. Whatever works to bring out the important features for your purpose. With high-rise, which is the high-resolution imaging science experiment on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or MRO, and yes, we do have a lot of acronyms in astronomy, there are three different filters. The entire detector has a strip of red through infrared, which lets in 570 to 830 nanometer wavelengths of light. In the middle, it also has a near-infrared filter that cuts out all wavelengths below 790 nanometers, and it has what they call a blue-green filter that cuts out everything above 580 nanometers. So, high-rise cannot do quote-unquote true color, as we would think about it, and most of the images released are black and white from the red-to-infrared pixels. But, since it does have three different filters, at least over part of the camera, it can do color strips down the middle of the black-and-white image. And, a lot of what you've seen over the last week or two from high-rise of the Curiosity landing site are these three color composites. Now, I don't know for certain, but I think that most of them assign the blue-green filter to blue, the red-to-infrared filter to green, and the infrared to red, 
when doing three-color RGB composites. The best way to interpret this stuff is that anything that appears blue in the images is going to be visible in the light that humans can see. Anything that's bright red is invisible to humans, but brighter in the infrared. Mars has a thin layer of rusty red dust across its entire surface, but below that, in most places, is basalt, which is volcanic rock. Basalt appears generally neutral in color, a sort of blackish-grayish rock, as opposed to red dust. So, when you're color combining and you boost the blue, anything that has recently disturbed the surface, like, say, a fresh impact crater or a rover landing, it's going to appear bright blue in these as opposed to a more neutral orange. Similarly, if any of you have seen the strip that shows one possible path that Curiosity might take up Mount Sharp, it goes from orange rock to bright blue sand dunes. That rock is more sedimentary rock with the dust veneer covering it, while the blue are sand dunes made out of basaltic rock. Similarly, there are images from Curiosity. As I mentioned last time, Curiosity does have a camera with a Bayer pattern built in so that we can get true red, green, blue images sent back just like your consumer camera. But Mars not only has a layer of dust on the ground, but in the atmosphere as well. It's like the rover is shooting photos through a perpetual reddish thin haze, so the photos are going to have a red cast to them. When NASA refers to photos as, quote, white balanced, end quote, that's adjusting the colors so that something that's supposed to be pure white, like a sticker on the rover, looks white in the photo. That's not how it would look on Mars, but it is how it would look if it were here on Earth. That helps geologists to identify rocks. When I took a geology lab way back a few years ago in undergrad, one of the first ways we learned to identify different rock types was simply by color. In the end, this gets back to just a simple understanding of what true color actually means, and that it's fake. Mars is red, but when you take a photo, you can change the colors to be whatever you want in order to bring out the features that you want to bring out. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although it's probably easiest just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. By way of feedback related to last episode's topic on image processing and anomalies part one, Benny L. from Stockholm, Sweden, wrote in with the appreciated compliments before stating, quote, I have a minor nitpick regarding number 47 about image processing. You mentioned pixels and what the word is short form for. In actual fact, it stands for picture element, not pixel element, as you said. Its origin is with early computer graphics. I believe I first heard the term in the late 70s or early 80s. Yeah, I'm kinda old school nerd. I'm sure you just misspoke, but since you're always admirably careful with details, I couldn't resist the opportunity to point it out to you. End quote. Now, Benny's message did contain two smileys, possibly to make this crushing and embarrassing correction less of a blow. But yes, he is quite correct. I miswrote and misspoke when I was working on that episode, not even catching it in two passes of editing. By way of general feedback, I'm getting, it now seems, like weekly suggestions for future shows, which is really, really cool, because it gives me an idea for what you all want to hear. 
Unfortunately, or possibly fortunately, almost no one has submitted a request that someone else has made, which goes to show, I think, that this podcast does fill a niche that was previously unoccupied, and that many of your passing acquaintances, I'm sure, would love to hear if you told them about it. Now, with all that in mind, I wanted to give you all a peek into the future episodes that I have planned. The next episode is going to be UFO prophecy-related, another Billy Meyer one. Also on the books for the next two to three months is another fake story of Planet X, actually two of them, the mystery of Russia's Phobos II mission, an interview on extraterrestrial life with a very VIP, another interview on methane on Mars, lunar formation and origins, another Apollo moon hoax episode, the face on Mars, and whether claiming asteroid impacts for solar system anomalies is actually special pleading. Also in the queue, but not specifically scheduled, are an Eric Von Donneken episode, Crop Circles, Linda Milton, Howe and UFOs, Maurice Cotterell's Ideas of Gravity, Whether Dark Matter and Energy Exist, Neil Adams and the Expanding Earth, The Iron Sun, More Hyperdimensional Physics, David Icke, Nassim Haramin, The Electric Universe, The Shining Code, Planet Formation via Solar Fission, The Movie Iron Sky, Neo Velikovskyanism, Jose Escamilla and the Color of the Moon, Harp, Hoagland's Martian Geometry at the Cydonia region, an astrology clip show, Peter James and Jupiter and Saturn lining up, post-2012, solar system warming, pyramid numerology, moons and earthquakes, and the binary sun. So yeah, lots of episode ideas, lots of things in the queue, but keep them coming. And with that said, it means that it is time for The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was very open-ended. Let's say you run across a website that claims to have found fossilized life on Mars in photos from the Mars rovers. What steps would you take in order to look into the claims? I did get a few responses. Jans was perhaps the best one that didn't answer the question. She wrote, quote, Captain, a Hoaglandian cruiser has dropped out of conspiracy space and tries to trap us in a pareidolia field. Full power to the BS deflectors, arm the logic torpedoes, man the fallacy guns, and distribute the Occam's razors to the crew. And get that astronomer royale on the bridge, now! Related to the last line, Parrot, who was interviewed on episode 18 about ancient aliens, wrote in that, among other things, he would look for anything that I may have written on the subject or ask me directly. When I told him that didn't count, it was cheating. He suggested that it was natural that if you have a friend who's more knowledgeable than you about a topic to ask for their input, which does make sense, if still, I think, cheating for this particular puzzler. He also wrote that if it were a specifically fossil claim, he'd look around at earth rocks to see if he saw similar patterns that obviously weren't fossils. He'd also try to look up the rock type to see if it's even possible for a fossil to form in that kind of rock. I liked that answer because I actually hadn't thought of that, and the three kinds of rocks, sedimentary, igneous, and metamorphic, almost all fossils are found in sedimentary rocks it's almost impossible for them to be in igneous and especially in metamorphic. So, if Sir Charles Schultz III is claiming that almost every rock he sees on Mars has fossils in it, it's not possible, because almost every rock he sees is volcanic in origin. 
Torsten P. from the USA also said he'd look around the internet for others who may have already debunked it. But one of the other things that he suggested that I found interesting was to examine the photo for manipulation by things like old darkroom tricks that he used to do in high school photography. Now that's actually an important point that's lost on many young people today, is what the old masters could do in darkrooms with photos. And after you get your head out of the gutter, I'm talking about things like putting a crumpled piece of plastic in front of part of your negative to give a weird glow to the print, and stuff like that. For this episode, there is no puzzler, but for the next episode about a specific prophecy of asteroid Apophis hitting Earth by Billy Meyer, the alleged UFO contactee, if you happen to think of a good one, please send it in. And no announcements this week, so... That wraps up this topic for the 48th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Topic, or podcast, I mean. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. You can tell that the send stuff is not edited. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjredesign.net. If you have feedback, please use 1, the feedback form on the website, 2, send an email to podcast at sjredesign.net, 3, Leave a comment on the webpage for this episode on the website. Four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. Episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every email and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your portal of choice. If you liked it, tell someone else. Thank you.